Turn, please, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. This is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. We started last week. We will finish this week, beginning with verse 10 on that part. But I want to read the whole letter. But this morning, Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. This is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that your word does stand. It's certain, it's true. So we'd ask your spirit's help as we come to it. Father, that this word that is the foundation of our lives, Father, give us understanding of what uh, Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. Father, about the open doors and what that means for us as your people as we live out the gospel here in the 21st century. So, Father, glorify your Son, we pray, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Political chaos, high gas prices, runaway inflation, a time of weariness, confusion, as one writer puts it. Uh, a time of a period of transition for America as the progressive values that emerged in previous decades have continued to flourish today. Welcome to the summer of 1974. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was the year I graduated from high school, uh, what was dubbed the me decade. And uh, quite frankly, today's headlines sound much like those headlines. Uh, the challenge, though, before you graduates today here in the 21st century... Uh, is that the culture's wave of progressive ideology uh, has become a tsunami, threatening to wash away our nation's cultural norms and values and seeking to minimize the church and its impact. The mid-decade of the 70s seems like nothing compared to the self-absorbed individualism uh, that's growing here in the 20s. A time of such individualism that everybody has to be entitled to their own pronouns, a nonsensical pronouns, I might say, which really sort of eliminates the need for pronouns, but if you stop and think about it. Uh, nonetheless, not surprisingly, the first century church in Philadelphia also faced the challenge of attempting to live against the, the, the cultural tide of Greco-Roman culture. Now, due to their walk with Jesus, they did suffer economically for failing to go with that tide. As Phil Newton says, given the persecution that took place, the waves of it, it might have been thought that the church would not make it into the second century. Um, but it did. 
the church advanced as it carried out the ongoing ministry of Jesus uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to the ends of the earth. As we saw last week, it was Jesus who opened the doors that no one else can shut. And faithful people lived out the gospel and when necessary laid down their lives for Jesus. Spreading the good news uh, through the day-to-day gospel conversations in cities like Philadelphia, as well as delivery going out to the nations. Now, what does Jesus say then to the church in Philadelphia and all, uh, that will help the class of 22 uh, and all of us with the challenge to follow Jesus here in the 21st century? As he's opened doors through his death on the cross for people from every nation to enter in. Let's go to the text and see. First, Jesus commends constant commitment. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. Uh, The church in Philadelphia kept the word of Jesus to patiently endure the hardship that came their way. Now, gracious, I want to remind you of something. The world hates you. Uh, And that's because the world hates Jesus. I know we're often on a quest to be liked by people around us. It's a normal thing. Uh, We're not called to try and deliberately alienate people and anger people. We're called to walk in love and walk in truth. And that's what Jesus did. And that love and that truth so angered people that it led to the cross. And now Jesus tells us, take up our cross and follow him. Patiently endure whatever comes. Uh, Hold to the gospel, hold to Jesus. When we keep Jesus' word and we do just that, Jesus in turn says what? Notice, I will keep you. A word and idea that we're going to see over and over again in the book of Revelation. Now what is it Jesus commits to keep us about? Well, let's look at the coming attractions, if you will. Picking up again in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, what's Jesus mean by keeping us from the hour of trial? Let's be upfront. Some people take this to mean that one day before a seven-year tribulation, Jesus will come and he'll rapture the church out of this world so that it does not have to face all the pain and suffering that will take place during the tribulation period. And I'm going to say that would be wonderful if that's what it did mean. Um, uh, you know, if, I, if it means avoiding tribulation, sign me up, okay? I'm sort of a pain-averse guy, uh, and, and I would like that. But it really goes against the idea of what the, the whole Bible seems to teach, and specifically the book of Revelation. Uh, here he uses hour, the hour of trial. That would indicate a, a shorter period of time. And I suggest it doesn't just refer to the end of time itself, but smaller periods are going to come up periodically throughout history. Second, we'll see throughout Revelation the people of God suffering. You know, we'll see the martyrs ask, ask God about that. Friends, Jesus never promised to spare us from physical pain. You can ask, ask Joseph or Daniel or Jeremiah or Isaiah or John the Baptist, or Peter, or Paul, or Jesus. 
I could go on. As we go through Revelation, we'll see nothing else to suggest the absence of physical pain for God's people. Indeed, as the whole world undergoes judgment, we're going to see a lot of physical pain for everybody. However, for us, Jesus keeps his word. And he's present with his people spiritually as he prepares us, uh, the church, for his service. That's what we read there in Isaiah 43. He walks through the fire, through the river. Uh, We saw that in Romans 8 earlier. It's the promise of John 10. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me as greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What did John, Jesus pray for us in John 17, just before his arrest? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus promises his presence with us during trial. And then he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So this second attraction here, of course, is Jesus himself. Now, when's he coming? Again, some people think this is just at at the end of time. Um, But remember, the promise of the Great Commission is what? Lo, I'm with you. Always, always, to the ends of the earth. His point here is that he's coming, not only in the future, yes, he's coming again, but now in the present, now in the hours of trial that we will face, he will come. It gives us a preview of his final coming. Revelation gives us an unrelenting series of judgments throughout human history that will finally end when Jesus comes as Lord and Judge, as we're going to see over in chapter 19. That's why Jesus says, hold on. Again, we're not immune from life's ups and downs. All right? They're going to come. In fact, Jesus said, what? Each day has enough trouble of its own, so why are you worried about tomorrow? All right? The reason we do not need to worry is that we understand we're sustained and we're strengthened by the presence of Jesus with us. So when things get difficult for us, and I promise you at times they will, Jesus, hold fast. Literally, keep holding fast. This is simply living according to the guidelines and promises of God's Word. This is the hymn, Trust and Obey in in Daily Action. Persevere in the midst of trial. And if we do, he says, no one may seize our crown. Now, what's he talking about? He's not talking about our salvation. Our salvation is never referred to as our crown. Uh, in Scripture. But our rewards are. The crown here, they would have understood, was, was the, the wreath crown they, they would have received if they won an athletic competition. Um, and so he's saying, we do, not, we do not win by stopping, but we keep on. We keep on keeping on in the basics of, of Jesus. Prayer, study of God's Word, sharing joy. No one can or will take our reward from us as we hold fast to Jesus. We will have the victor's crown. And then Jesus also instructs us to cling to the promises. Verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. 
So the challenge in the 21st century is to, to, to conquer, uh, perhaps translated overcome. The whole world's against the church because Satan's against us. And this world is his kingdom. We're not to give in, but we're to hold on. Now, we can look at this two ways, this section. One is to see four different promises. Another, maybe better, is to see four aspects of one promise. That helps to remember uh, that the devastating earthquake of 1780 that destroyed uh, Sardis pretty much also destroyed Philadelphia. And yet what happened to Philadelphia after that were a series of aftershocks that continued for years such that nobody felt safe to live in the downtown area because the buildings might fall over. So they moved out of downtown, out into what we would think of as, as a suburbs perhaps. They would just probably call little villages outside the city. They had a genuine fear. But Jesus addresses the church by telling them they will be pillars in his temple. They will be safely downtown. This addresses security. This is stability. Pillars hold the temple up. There were two well-known bronze pillars in Solomon's temple. One was called Joachim, meaning I will establish. The other was called Boaz, meaning strengthen. And so they help assure us the stability of the temple. Another custom helps us understand why Jesus says this. In Philadelphia, if a prominent citizen died very often, uh, their name would be carved into one of the, uh, the uh, uh, foundation uh, pillars in their temple of the God where they happened to worship. These pillars, if you will, these key people brought stability to the city of Philadelphia in a, in a figurative way. But we need to remember what the scripture tells us, the promise of Isaiah 33 about God. The Lord's exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. He will be the stability of your times. Uh, you know, so much of what we see here today in our time is, is cringeworthy. But amidst the chaos that surrounds us is God's stability. And by making us pillars, he uses us to bring that stability to our world. And as we continue, I remind you, we said last week the city of Philadelphia at least twice gave itself a new name to honor and ingratiate themselves with Roman emperors. First, they called themselves the New Caesar or Neo Caesarea. Uh, then they later named the city of Flavia uh, to honor Caesar Flavia. Uh, and Jesus plays on that, and the fact that they had not denied his name up above, by giving three names. He gave three names to the church there. First, he said, I give you the name of my God. That name identifies them with God. That points to their eternal union with God. Second, he gives them the name of the city of God that's coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. Ezekiel anticipated that. In fact, the, the climax of Ezekiel's book, the last verse, uh, is calls the city of Jerusalem, the Lord who is there. That's its name, the permanency of our residency. Then Jesus goes even further and says he's going to give to them his new name. Uh, now, what's that new name? According to Revelation 19, we don't know yet. 
His name no one knows, but it's going to be revealed in eternity. Uh, and Jesus will unveil that new name, and, and it will fill us with wonder and with praise as the people of God. And so these new names, this pillar, point to our, our intimacy, our identity with Christ, our ownership by Christ, our security in Christ. You know, at the close of the 19th century, the German philosopher, theologian, Frederick uh, Schleiermacher, uh, he was an old man by then. He was sitting alone in a park. Some came up to him. They didn't recognize him. And they just sat down. They said, well, well who are you? Uh, he's a very liberal theologian. He wrote many books that still impact the church. Quite negatively, we might point out, still today, destroys people's faith. Yet he was a brilliant man. And you know what he said when they asked him, who are you? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Do we know who we are? Or whose we are? Jesus gave us the name of God. The name of his city. The name of Jesus. Friends, don't look inside for your identity. We have been bought with a price. And we belong to Christ. We have union with Christ. We get to Revelation 14, we'll see we have His new name written on our foreheads. And then we have Jesus' final instruction, which we call cultivating a listening ear and heart. Look at verse 13. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we've seen these words close to this at the end of each letter. And the point is, spiritual discernment is needed. Spiritual discernment is a a lifetime task. It's needed to hear God's Word, to understand God's Word, to live out God's Word. Remember, graduates, the enormous opportunity Jesus gives here with the open door. I want you to remember the hymns that we sang this morning, that Jesus is an opportunity to be involved in the gospel going to the ends of the earth, making sure that the good news that Jesus shall reign is heard. Understand the opportunities before you. Yield yourself to God for His glory, no matter what your occupation is, you journey through this life bound for the promised land. Be spiritually discerning. See potential. Recognize the doors that Jesus opens. We need to see the hope. We need to share the hope for a fallen, broken world all around us. In 1463, the Florence, Italy, uh, not South Carolina, uh, city council uh, decided they needed a a monument to enhance their city. So they commissioned a sculptor uh, named Agostino di Duccio to uh, carve out a large statue to stand in front of City Hall. They gave him the money to purchase marble. So he went to the quarry nearby at Carrera and uh, had him cut him a large slab of marble, 19-foot slab, of uh, the marble. Um, however, he, his instruction really was, it was too thin. When they took it away, it separated, it fell, it broke, it cracked, had a crack on one side. Um, he was an artist, he threw a fit, and uh, he said the stone was useless, demanded taxpayers buy him another one, and the city council wouldn't do it. Um, and so that gleaming block of marble lay there on his side for some 38 years. Uh, sort of an embarrassment to the city. 
all concerned. So in 1501, they approached another resident in town, the son of a rather prominent uh, citizen, um, and asked him if he would take on the ambitious project to use and, and use that broken slab. Of course, the young man was Michelangelo Buonarotti, and um, he was 26 years old then. He had energy, vision, imagination. So he locked himself in the workshop behind the cathedral and went to carving and polishing, uh, chiseling, um, and for three years. When it was done, it took 49 men five days to get it moved from the cathedral to the front of the city hall. They had to take down uh, archways in the city and had to widen roads to get it through um, this 14-foot statue of David. And then people from across Europe came to see him, statue of David relaxing after he had killed Goliath. John Stone had been transformed from a, a massive fractured waste of rock into a masterpiece that surpassed the art of the Greeks and the Romans. Today's world is like that marble slab. It's cracked, and people don't know what to do about it. Children's lives are broken as they live on the streets. Nearly four-fifths of the children in our own country don't know Jesus. Our sin-saturated world is, is broken. People don't know how to fix it. Politicians' efforts are futile. The immediate future looks bleak. What they don't understand is the problem is a spiritual one. And so we need modern-day Michelangelo to come along and, and by God's grace, be used to, uh, to make something of this broken world and use it for the glory of God. We need the church to rise up and work by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our families and our villages and our cities and our, uh, our nation and, and give hope to a hurting world by sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what about us? All right. Um, it really finally happened. It shows that human potential knows really no end. And I'm not talking about Michelangelo. Back in April, the race to build the tallest tower ever of M&Ms uh, reached new heights. As, um, as an Iraqi man, Ibrahim Sadiq, uh, he, he stacked up seven M&Ms, broke out a record that had been set a year ago of six M&M's. Um, and uh, he's been practicing stacking for six years. In fact, he also holds a world record for the number of eggs he can hold on the back of his hand. Eighteen. Brent Booker, why don't you go home and try that uh, and see how many you can do and replace all the broken ones, all right? Um, uh, certainly, he shows, he shows persistence, he shows vision, he shows practice, he shows hard work. But I've got to say, in a world where I think there might be more pressing issues, I hope the class of 22 finds something better to do than stack M&Ms. But I suspect some of you are going to go home and try it today. All right. Um, as, as we seek to meet the challenge of being a believer in the 21st century, I pray God will build in your lives habits of grace-fueled holiness, and it will open a lifetime of opportunities for you. I pray as well that you keep your eyes fixed on the promises and fixed on Jesus himself, the promiser. And that the prayer that we're going to sing to respond to God's word today will truly be the prayer of your heart. And that reminds you of something else. And that is, you need the church. You need to stay involved in a local body of believers. A local church, wherever you go. The world is trying to close the doors of gospel opportunity. 
The world is trying to silence the church. But Jesus has opened the doors, and as we saw last week, no one can shut them. Now, maybe I should apologize for something. That is that you've been involved with what the world would describe as an uncool church. You know, CNPC's never been accused of one thing, being trendy. Um, And um, uh, Brett McCracken, uh, he wrote the book, Hipster Christianity, When Church and Cool Collide. And he observed that things like confession and repentance, daily obedience to the whole counsel of Scripture, a quiet commitment to the spiritual disciplines of, uh, are not um, the cutting edge people are often looking for. And it won't land a church in, in GQ's uh, profile of churches. But these are the things, he says, that make up a healthy, sustainable Long obedience in the same direction, church. And that maybe being an uncool, unabashedly churchy church, it's actually a good thing. Maybe Christianity doesn't appeal to consumer preferences and take its cue from Twitter. It's exactly the sort of faith people need. Let me very loosely paraphrase him here. We do many things the way we do because we believe the church should lead on the path to a long obedience a quiet diligence to pursue Jesus faithfully with others in community, in good times and in bad times, for better or for worse. This form of plodding old-fashioned church, we're not going to go viral on Instagram or TikTok. Uh, but friends, I believe the uncool church grows Christians to maturity. And it helps us all for a long, steady, and fruitful race. Just like it's helped countless saints for the last 2,000 years. And my prayer is that, that, that I and, and each of you will be those who join to, to sing about pursuing Jesus. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou, and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys. O bright heaven's sun, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Our God will do it. He really will. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, what amazing promises in your word. Father, that you would would put your name on us. That the church's name would be on us, the new Jerusalem. That the new name of Jesus would be on us because we belong to you. That we'd be pillars in your temple. That you would be the stability of our times. Oh, Father, we thank you. So, Father, we pray as uh, Travis prayed for these graduates, Father. We pray for all of us, Lord, to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, to claim all the promises of God's word. And, Father, is anybody here that doesn't yet know you? doesn't know the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. 
Today, Father, show them the cross of Jesus. Show them his death for our sins. And draw them to place their trust in him, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.